Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, my name is Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number 84. Today, I'll be interviewing Lucy Nathanson. Lucy Nathanson is a child therapist specializing in an anxiety disorder called selective mutism. She is the founder of confidentchildren.co.uk. Children with SM are unable to talk in some situations, example at school. Uh, Lucy's passion for helping children with selective mutism was sparked a decade ago when she came across a child who hadn't spoken for the two years he had been at school. Since then, Lucy has published four books on selective mutism, as well as two online courses, one for schools and one for parents, and her YouTube channel, which has 220,000 views. She also has an active Facebook page, Confident Children Selective Mutism Therapy. Lucy works with parents and children internationally, having supported children to overcome selective mutism in England, Australia, Thailand, Ireland, Bulgaria, and more. Her mission is to help children worldwide to overcome selective mutism, free themselves of anxiety, find their voice, and to shine. So thank you so much for being here, Lucy. I'm really excited for you to talk about, you know, your children's books. And, and but I think what we want to start off with first, um, and also, by the way, I'm going to have all the links on my website. For Lucy, if you want to access any of the online courses, her website, everything is going to be on my website, Language During Mealtime. So um, so the first thing, Lucy, so thank you so much for being here. And let's just let's just talk off. Let's just start off with, you know, what is selective mutism? Sure. Thank you for inviting me as well. So selective mutism is an anxiety disorder whereby a child or even an adult can speak freely in some situations. So they're able to speak, but they're unable to speak in other situations. So, you know, every single child with selective mutism is a unique individual. So some children may speak, or most children speak freely at home with their close family members, but they're unable to speak in specific situations. So some children might be unable to speak at all at school. Other children may just talk to one friend, but not to adults. Some children may speak to one teacher, but not to anybody else. Some children can't speak to extended family members or to strangers. So it really depends on what is anxiety inducing to the specific child. So, so I love your books and she's written, Lucy has written three children's books all about selective mutism. So the first question I have is, you know, it's like they're all about selective mutism. And I'm sure what um, parents may ask or educators is if you could just talk a little bit about each one um, and what their similarities versus differences are, just so that, you know, if a parent or a teacher wanted to purchase one, just so that they kind of have an idea of where to where to start. Sure. So I've actually got them here. So it might be useful for people to see if they're watching the video. Um, so the first book I wrote was called My Name is Eliza and I Don't Talk at School. And each of my books are really, um, um, the, the aim is to solve an issue. So 
um, for each of them, I realised that there was a gap and I wanted to fill it and to provide a resource for parents and for schools. So the first book, My Name's Lies and I Don't Talk at School, is a book to read to the child with selective mutism. So I find that children with SM often haven't ever come across anybody else with selective mutism. They might think that they're the only child in the whole world who has selective mutism. So I think it can be really healing for any of us to read about somebody else who is experiencing the same difficulties as us. So there are really two parts to this book. There's um, the child reading about somebody who has similar difficulties so identifying with a character and also I introduce a therapeutic approach to helping children with selective mutism so it can be read on several levels so it can just be used as a tool to to just start a conversation with the child about their selective mutism to bring it out into the open but also if the child is ready it can be used as a way to introduce some of the strategies and to try some of the therapeutic approach um, with the child so that was the first book. My name's Liza and I don't talk at school. And then after that, um, parents were contacting me saying, you know, I'm we really enjoying the book. My child really, really likes the book. But what we're finding is that peers make unhelpful comments. Um, so wow. unintentional comments. So peers often say to the child, why don't you talk? Yeah. When are you going to talk? You know, and if a child has this anxiety disorder, it's really unhelpful for them to be asked these questions they can't answer first of all they don't know why they can't talk they don't know when they're going to talk so these um these comments are really unhelpful so I decided to write this book called why doesn't Alice talk at school and this is not aimed at the child with selective mutism. and this is aimed to um, it, the, the goal is for it to be read to friends and the, the class so to you know, without the child with selective mutism there. So I ask that the child's SM is not present and the teacher reads this book to the class. And it's really um, explains why Alice doesn't talk at school and how we can help Alice to overcome her fears. And if Alice does talk one day, just act normally because children innocently would be very excited when, if and when the child with selective mutism speaks, but drawing attention to the fact that they've spoken, you know, having a big reaction is the you know I've, I've heard of a lot of cases where a child has started to speak and because of the reaction of peers that has you know they've stopped speaking after that because it's just been too scary for them and children with SM because it's an anxiety disorder their worst fear is really kind of having the spotlight on them um they so we, so we really need to brief the class on how to approach the child with selective mutism um, so that was that was the second book for the class. And then after I'd written these two books, parents were saying, you know, it would be great to have a boy character, <laughs> a story about a boy with selective mutism. So I decided to write a book called My Name is Ben and I Don't Talk Sometimes. So selective mutism does statistically affect more girls than boys, hence why the first books were girls. But of course, it's there are boys with selective mutism, and of course, um girls may like to read about another character as well so the Ben story um focuses it, it's a similar format to the Eliza story in that Ben does share how he feels across different situations and how he starts to make steps forward with talking but the focus is not so much on school as the Eliza book school is mentioned in the book but Ben talks about 
how he feels at his birthday party, how he feels with his auntie Sarah, who he's unable to talk to. So it's really a different child's experience of the same condition. So, um, yeah, some children have both the Eliza book and the Ben book, and some children just have one of them. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you so much for that. Um, so one of the things that I did love in, I mean, I love all the books, but um, in My Name is Ben and I Don't Talk Sometimes, um, mm-hmm. is when you, you know, in the beginning of the book was how to read this book. And I really like that because I just, and there's different steps for, um, for parents and educators and how to read the book in an like optimal way. So I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that section and kind of what led to adding that section in your book? Because this is yeah. the most recent, or the most recent book. Yes. Yes. So um, I, it's really important that we present the books to the child with selective mutism in the right way, because it is a very sensitive topic. Um, often children with selective mutism don't, at the start, don't want to talk about how they feel they don't want to talk about their anxieties it's uncomfortable for them so it's really important that we uh, that when we present the book to the child it's done in the right way so there's actually a how to uh, how to read this book section in the eliza book and the ben book so the first um the first step is to for the parents to read the book before presenting it to the child to decide whether the book is appropriate for your specific child because it might not be suitable for every single child with selective mutism. Some children are may not be aware um, of the fact that they can't talk sometimes, depending on their age, for example. And some children aren't ready to talk about how they're feeling just yet. And I say, therefore, I say to parents, read the book first. If you decide that it's your child isn't ready just yet, the book can still be useful for parents because it still outlines the therapeutic approach. So parents can still learn some strategies through the books and um, even if they don't decide just yet to read to their child. Although I must say that most parents decide to read the book to their child. Um, So once the parents have read the book themselves, the next step is to read the book to the child and not not mention your child's difficulties. Focus on the characters. So talk about Ben or Eliza and how they feel. Um, so again, to, for the child to, 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 to begin the conversation without it be the focus being on the child themselves. The next yeah, that's step, interesting because I feel like most people would just naturally be like, oh, he, you know, he has kind of the same, you know, difficulties as let's say talking to that child. So that's good that you mentioned that because I think instinctively it would just be natural to say something like that. Yes. So I'm exactly. glad that you wrote that in there because I think most people would say that. Yes. And it's really important that we don't just give the book to the child without thinking it through first. It is yeah. a anxiety mm-hmm. disorder and we need to approach it in a sensitive way. So after um, the, you know, we read the book and we talk about focus on the characters themselves, the next step is to focus on how your child is braver than the character. So you can say to your child that you talk to your auntie or you talk to your friend or um, you can talk to whoever. So we, we really want to empower the child who's reading the story um, to uh, feel as though they are braver than the, the character themselves. 
Um, next step is to continue to read the story with focus on the, the character, but not on your child. And then if your child is ready for it, to introduce the idea of trying some of the strategies in the book. So saying, why don't we have a brave chart? Why don't we um, practice going to the supermarket? And uh, you can talk to me away from the, the, um, the shopkeeper, for example. Yeah. So it's a way to present some of the strategies to the child if they're ready for that. Yeah, I think that is so helpful. Because I think a lot of people may not know if you just had the book, they mm-hmm. may not know kind of like how to read it. They may, you know, kind of give it to the child or they may, you know, do all these kind of things. And we'll talk a little bit about the do's and the don'ts a little bit later. But um, and that I just want to go right into the other section, which is the therapeutic approach, which mm-hmm. I really, really like in your book. I think that, you know, as you know, a speech pathologist, too, like I, I just feel like the way that you incorporated the therapeutic approaches so clearly. Um, so the next section, just to let everyone know, in case you don't, um, in case you don't see it, and you're just listening to it. Um, Lucy ta- actually gives page numbers and talks about, you know, these page numbers, like about what's happening in that specific part of the book and what approach and like what strategies are being used, which I think is really um really smart. I I think it's really, really smart to include that because, you know, when you're a therapist, you could talk about these approaches and everyone knows the approaches, but maybe for somebody who's reading the book, they don't really know the approaches or maybe they're new to learning about selective mutism and they don't know about this. So it's a nice way for them to learn about the approaches and then also kind of have a visual of actually what's going on. So they could contextually see the approach going on, which I think is really, really great. I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that in that is that you actually have a lot of these therapeutic approaches. And to also um, let anyone know, listening, there's also discussion questions. So there's a huge part um, in the beginning of, you know, all of Lucy's books that really help parents and professionals um, learn about selective mutism before you even start the book. So I think it's a nice, you know, it's a nice book to have at home. It's a great book to have in the classroom. Um, so, so one of the, the next question I have is just, you know, some tips for parents. Let's say you have a child with uh, recently diagnosed with selective mutism um, or even a teacher. You know, you have a student who's recently in your, who just came into your classroom this year with selective mutism. What are some good tips that you could give um, to kind of just, you know, get started to help this child? Sure. I would say that the first thing that I like to, you know, to say to parents is to don't panic (laughs) because parents, when they first contact me, for example, often feel really overwhelmed and really unsure of how to help their child with to overcome their selective mutism. Often they feel that their child will never be able to talk. And it's really, really scary for parents. They really feel disempowered. They want to do, they want to help their child, but they just don't know how. So I always like to reassure parents as a starting point that there is so much that we can do to help a child with selective mutism. And it's not that just because they can't talk today doesn't mean they won't be able to talk ever. Because children overcome selective mutism every single day. I see it all the time. It is definitely possible. So that's the the first thing I would say is to don't panic and don't think that this is forever. The the next um, 
point, the next tip would be that we want to create a pressure-free environment for the child with selective mutism. And this is for teachers and for parents. So instinctively, people often, if, if, if a child isn't talking, we often um, want to help them to talk. So we go over and ask them a question and hope that if we kind of keep on trying every day that the child will talk to us eventually but that's really not the case selective mutism is compared to a phobia of talking so just like any phobia if the focus is on that phobia and you know every day we're trying we're kind of putting the phobia in person's face that's really really uncomfortable and it's very unhelpful so rather than focusing on the fact the child isn't talking, we want to create this really non-pressured environment and actually give the impression to the child that it's absolutely okay that they, they're not able to talk right now in these different situations. That That's absolutely fine. There are lots of ways they can take part and participate, have fun without talking. And it's really not you know, and that, that's absolutely fine. And, you know, have it, giving, having that little pep talk with the child can really um, just give them almost like a sigh of relief <laughs> that, you know, oh, okay. Um, so the first step is to create this really pressure-free environment, both at home and at school, not to put the child on the spot trying to get them to talk. And then once we create this really pressure-free environment, the next tip is to start to take action to help the child. And um, that we know that the, generally, the earlier we start to put strategies in place, the quicker a child will be able to make steps forward with their talking. So I would say meet with the school and put a plan in place. Discuss what we we'll, can start doing to help this child. Um, if, you, if you don't aren't um, aware of the strategies, then educate yourself on the strategies. There are, you know, luckily today, there are a lot of resources available. There are books on selective mutism. There are videos. I've got a whole YouTube channel dedicated to selective mutism. So, you know, arm yourself with the, the knowledge about selective mutism. I've even got a couple of online courses, as you mentioned at the start. So one for parents who are in those early stages, not knowing what to do. Um, and one for schools um, to, 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 to teach the schools the, the key strategies. So the um, once we take away that pressure, we then want to arm ourselves with the knowledge of how to help the child and then meet with the school and put a plan in place to help the child. And, you know, if you can have the support of a selective needs and specialist, of course, that is the ideal situation, but that's not necessarily needed. There are, as I said, lots of books available on selective needs. So you, parents have helped their child without having professional support. Of course. Um, it requires a bit more work, but it is, it is possible. So like in a school, what disciplines would be working with that child? Like I'm just thinking, you know, a speech pathologist, a psychologist, social worker, working with the teacher. Yes. Yeah. So the strategies are um, following a graded exposure approach. So helping the child to start to face their fear of talking in really small, manageable steps. So if we imagine the goal for the child to talk at school is like right on top of the ladder, we're breaking that goal down into steps and we're figuring out what can this child do right now? And let's work on the very first step of that ladder. For some children, it might be parents coming into school for these what we call sliding in or fading in sessions. 
where mm-hmm. the first step might be just for the child to practice talking for the parent in an empty room at school. That might be where right. that child is at. Mm-hmm. Um, for another child, if they're talking to an adult at school, the next step it, it, it is really, it really depends on the specific child. Um, but if they're talking to an adult at school in private, then it might be to gradually work on them talking in slightly more open areas. We're never throwing a child with selective mutism in the deep part of the pool. We're always figuring out what can this child do right now? And what is a tiny achievable practice that we can do to help them? And, and then we, and then we, follow this approach and just just help them to to do that one thing for some children we might even work with recordings so maybe at home with their permission perhaps the parent would record them reading and then this can be played to the teacher for example so it's just figuring out in quite a creative way what can we do to help the child to start to get their voice into the school environment Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So that kind of leads to my you know my last question is just we talked a lot about you know what to do and some things what not to do. I mean, I'm just thinking that we don't want to start in the hardest environment for sure. We don't want to ask a lot of questions, which I think is sort of, that's one thing that's why I wanted to talk about the do's and the don'ts, because I think naturally if somebody is, let's say not talking, we would ask them questions, right? So, um, so can we talk a little bit more? And also there's different kinds of questions, right? Like there's the open-ended questions, there's closed choice questions, there's yes, no questions. And there's, you know, there's some questions also you don't actually have to verbalize to answer. You could just be using some sort of gesture or writing. Um, so that's what I wanted to ask you is just sort of like for, you know, for some parents and, um, and also professionals, like what are things to avoid? Or which questions to avoid versus which ones are okay. And I know that this is more of like a generalization because every child is different. But in but kind of just overall. Yes, sure. Yeah. So if the child hasn't spoken to you before, they are not going to answer your question. So the kind of blanket rule is don't ask a child a question if they haven't spoken to you before. And when I say question, I mean a question that requires a verbal response. Mm-hmm. So we can, if the child is ready for it, again, depending on the specific child, we could ask questions where they could nod or shake their head or point, so respond non-verbally. Um, but if they haven't yet spoken to you before, we don't want to ask them a question because if we do that, then first of all, they this will increase their anxiety because this is a, you know, their, their, the, the fear they have is responding to people. A question that will trigger their fight, flight, freeze response and they won't be able to answer and then they'll associate you as somebody that they can't talk to so the more that we kind of bombard the child with questions the more that they feel that you're a scary person essentially and they and it actually makes it a lot harder for them to speak and we're reinforcing the fact that they they can't speak because if they're having lots of experiences of being prompted for speech and they can't answer that is evidence to them that they can't do it so the best thing to do is actually to not ask the child any questions at the start. So when you see the child, you can say something like, hi, nice to see you and go into like this running commentary style of speech. So oh, it's a nice day today. And, you know, all oh, the, the walls are orange. There's a picture on the wall. There's this and that. And just kind of talk to the child in this kind of description way. And by um, doing so in this running commentary way, the child 
starts to relax because then they start to realize, oh, this person isn't going to be trying to make me speak. And as a result of that, their their body relaxes, their throat muscles start to relax because it is a really physical, um, you know, it is is a physical reaction. Uh, When they go into this fight, flight, freeze response, just like with any phobia, you know, their body responds to this, their heart rate may increase, they may start sweating, their muscles tense up, and crucially, their throat muscles tense up and they just can't speak in that moment. So we want to help them to relax and by the way children with sm often say that their throat feels blocked and the words just can't come out so we want to help them as a starting point to just feel comfortable with us non-verbally and for them to see that we're not trying to get them to talk and when i start working with a child the first thing i say to children is i introduce myself and i say i'm not going to ask you any questions until you're ready and that is you know that's really important for them to, to to feel um as though we're not trying to push them to talk. And, yeah. um, and just um, lastly, the, um, I do have a, a short book for parents, or for adults, sorry, called Understanding Selective Mutism, A Beginner's Guide. And this is for adults. It's a very short book, um, just 30 pages. Um, and the, the point of this book is to hand it out to people in the child's life. So maybe uncle, auntie, um, the neighbor, the teacher, just for them to get a real kind of basic understanding of the do's and don'ts. Because as you say, it's so important everyone is on the same page and everyone has a, this kind of basic understanding of selective mutism and how they should act when they see the child to create this really kind of pressure free, comfortable environment for the child. Yeah, I think that's so important because, you know, we all want to help the child. But some people, you know, we need to be educated about it to know how to do it right. So we may think that by asking a lot of questions that maybe that's the right way to do it. You know, like, oh, I'm going to just ask questions and then they have to respond. Right. Um, but but by getting educated, you know, I, that's actually because because asking tons of questions is actually impeding. It's actually making the process even more difficult for the child. So I just think it's so, um, I just think it's very interesting. And I'm like, so glad that you came on because I think that your, you know, all of your books are so helpful for so many different people. And I think that's really where we need to, you know, especially that parenting book as well. You know, we need to get educated and we need to learn about it so we could help the child because maybe what naturally feels for a per like maybe for a parent or for a teacher to be the right way, maybe that isn't the right way. And that's why it's important to be, educated about it um yeah, to definitely. learn how we could make progress with this child um mm-hmm. so is there anything else that you wanted to add before we finish up today yeah i was just going to say um with selective mutism it's really a holistic approach and we have to be kind of everyone in the child's life should be um briefed <laughs> on how they should act with the child you know the parents the family members the friends um the school staff so that's why you know for each of the books they're almost tackling each angle um so that because it's really a as I said a holistic approach to helping the child it's not just you know a therapist comes in and help and works with the child and that's it everyone needs to be educated including the friends and um, as I said I've got this Alice book why doesn't Alice talk at school which can be read to the class but I also have a video on my YouTube channel called video to show the class and there's a There's a video for younger children and a video for older children. And they're very short videos, about four minutes long. And in the video, I say, there's someone in your class who finds it hard to talk at school. And this is how you can help them. 
um, just so that everyone has that, you know, is briefed and is on the same page. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important to educate kids in the classroom because it's natural that they're going to ask, why doesn't this child talk? Right. Like they're going to ask that and kids want to help, but they don't know how to help. And I think that by educating and helping the kids learn how to help is really important because I think instead of just being like, oh, let's just not talk about it. You know, it's, it, that's not really, I think the best way, the best way is to really tackle and be like, okay, this is what's going on. This is why isn't, you know, what are different ways that you could help your classmate? Um, and kids are non judge They're not judgmental. Like they want to help. They want to connect with the other kids and they want to help. So mm-hmm. I think giving them strategies to help is really, really important. I'm also going to have a link to your YouTube channel. Um, in, you know, on my website. So everyone could go check that out, um, which I think is going to be really important. It's important for parents and for educators because parents may find that video. And, you know, if you find it really helpful, you could email it to the teacher and the teacher could share it with the class. Yeah, so definitely. it's, mm-hmm, yeah. And I think videos are also excellent ways of, you know, learning and getting educated. So you have all different, I mean, you really have a variety of different ways mm-hmm. to learn about selective mutism. So, yeah. And also I've got a video on my website called the do's and don'ts when interacting with a child with selective mutism. It's just seven minutes long. And I recommend that this video is shown to all school staff for them to just receive those basic do's and don'ts. Um, because it's really important that you know, everyone understands, as we've said, and a child may have be having a fantastic day, but they go into the playground and somebody says, oh, are you going to talk to me today? And, you know, and, and that just throws them and they've just gone two steps forward and now they've just gone three steps back because of that comment. So it's really important that everyone has just a basic knowledge. So that, that video, the do's and don'ts when interacting with a child with selective mutism um, should be shown to all school staff. And obviously in the ideal world, if they take the, the online course, uh, the school training, that's the ideal situation. But the alternative would be just the basic do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just one more question I just have is that when are, you know, kids usually diagnosed with selective mutism? Like, I mean, what is the, like, kind of, that saying normal, like typical age that a child will be diagnosed? I mean, I know that it could happen throughout a childhood, but I'm just curious. So usually when the child starts school or kindergarten or nursery is when it really um, becomes apparent because a child has been with a parent up until that point and they talk to their parent. So um, the, the parent might just assume they're a bit shy around new people. Um, so, you know, they might not answer the lady in the shop, but it hasn't, it's not very apparent until the child is dropped off at nursery or school for the first time. The parent leaves and the child doesn't speak and they haven't spoken for you know months <laughs> weeks months sometimes yeah. a year um then we know that this is you know m- more than just shyness so usually yeah the age of onset is when they start school so between you know three to five is when we become really aware of it generally right. well thank you so much i mean this was really informative and i know that anyone listening to this it's going to provide a wealth of knowledge and, you know, giving us links to all, I'm going to put links in there um, into the post about all the other resources you could access. So thank you so much, Lucy, for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me on and raising awareness of selective medicine. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening today. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime.